We're in a series called Stay the Course. If you've got your Bible there, please open it up to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25. If you've got one of the house Bibles at the back, you can turn to page 567. My name is Phil Adams, one of the pastors here in the network, mainly over in West Rogers Park, but here in South Rogers Park also. But yes, turn to Galatians chapter 5, and we'll read from verse 16 to 25. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such Things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray. God, we just come before you now as your people. We come before your word, God. We thank you for it. We thank you that you've revealed yourself through it, God. You've revealed truth to us. So God, this morning, would you speak into our lives, speak into our hearts, God, may you reveal your goodness, God, may we taste your goodness this morning, may we leave here wanting nothing other than your goodness, in Jesus' name, amen. In Irish history, I'm going to tell about three stories today, all about Irish and British history, and it's going to get a little bit confusing, but that's the way, we're going to go from Ireland to England to France to Germany, but bear with me, we'll start off in Ireland. In Irish history, when the, the British were ruling over, over Ireland, all of Ireland, one of the tactics of the British in trying to take control of Ireland was to gradually imp- impose British customs so that the, country, the countries would morph together as one, so that the British culture would dominate over the Irish culture. And at certain times, this was quite successful, especially when the people were tired of fighting tired of trying to claim their freedom, they would give in to the removal of their culture and just let it go because they were tired of fighting. And yet there was also a certain percentage, a small percentage of the people that wouldn't give up. And they had the task of stirring the rest of the population, reminding them the fight is not over, the fight has not finished. So they would write songs and they would sing them. They would write poems and read them. Storytellers would would travel the country reminiscing, keeping the culture alive. And these people were dangerous. The poets, the storytellers, the songwriters, not the warriors. It was the poets. It was the storytellers. And they would stir the people and remind them of the fight. Because there was a fire in people's hearts. And it just needed kindled. It just needed stirred up. And yet our our souls get fired up every day. Every day a sense of purpose within us stirs us to keep us motivated. We give ourselves pap talks lying in bed trying to get that first leg out of bed in the morning. 
When we were in, we lived in Logan Square, we came here and our, well for a start, our bathroom didn't have any heating, which was a problem in the winter. I think the lowest we woke up one morning and it was 46 in the house, and I was like, it was incredible. But uh, all of us, all the kids in the bed, all of us together, just trying to stay warm. But yeah, we all, something stirred us to get up in the morning. There's something that drives us to do what we do. There's something in our souls that motivates us and focuses our attention. Maybe it's providing for our families. Maybe it's graduating with that degree. Maybe it's just survival. Maybe it's a problem within society. Maybe you work for World Relief or a nonprofit, or maybe you're just motivated by pure profit. We wake up every day with enough energy, even just a little, to fight for something. We've been going through the the book of Galatians, the letter of Galatians, and we've been following Paul's train of thought thought through this this letter to the churches in Galatia over the past few months. And we've got many recaps, and here's another one. He initially, and he's still reminding his readers that acceptance before God comes through faith alone, trust alone, and the finished work of Christ alone. Not what we do, but what Christ did. And then Paul went on, if we keep going, Paul wanted to make sure his readers stayed free from relying on the law. He wanted them to continually move forward in their lives, resting on the work of Christ, reminding them that they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You stand before God as if you were Christ, because Christ stood before God as if he were you. Paul didn't want them to go back to works. He wanted them to rest free from relying on the law for their salvation. And now as we continue along Paul's train of thought, we're in the thick of answering the question, what now? How are we to live in light of our new identity in Christ? Paul's preached we're sons and daughters of God. He's he's preached peace with God. And yet the first few verses we read this morning, they don't sound so peaceful. Let me reread verses 16 and 17 of Galatians chapter 5. And to keep it open if you can. Verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Let me explain what's going on in, in these verses. Before someone becomes a Christian, the Bible teaches that our entire disposition was turned away from God. And what this means is not that there was no general good in our lives. It doesn't mean that we couldn't keep our marriages together or we couldn't make a positive difference in the lives of those around us. But what it does mean is before becoming a follower, a follower of Christ, there was a fatal defect in the motivations for which we lived our lives. Oh, there could have been good intentions. There could have been a desire for, for human flourishing and for peace and justice and kindness. But the fatal defect in our lives was that love for God, love, affection, devotion for the creator and the seer of all of life was not our motivation. And to live a life, no matter how seemingly noble from our perspective, a life void of love for God is a life turned away from God. It's a life of rebellion from the very purpose for which we were created. And this inner disposition, this sinful orientation away from God, Paul refers to as the flesh. This inner disposition, this sinful orientation away from God, Paul refers to as the flesh. So for every follower of Christ in this room, that was our entire disposition. The flesh ruled all of our faculties. 
Our fight was to run in one direction, and that direction was away from God. Our fight, no matter how subtle, was to kick against God as creator, to make ourselves the determiner of what is good and right, and not to bow the knee to the creator and sustainer of all life. But if you're a Christian this morning, if you're a follower of Christ, your eyes were opened to God's grace and his beauty, and in bowing the knee to God, accepting Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you were clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Peace with God was declared over you. You were reconciled back into your relationship with God. A few weeks ago, we thought about that to be found in Christ was to be found, to be hidden, to be smothered at the center of the embrace between God the Father and His Son. To be found in Christ is to be embraced by God just as we were Christ Himself. Peace with God. And yet, the verses we read don't sound very peaceful because they give words to what we experience right now as followers of Christ. And this is what we're thinking about today, that every follower of Christ is known not only for his inner peace with God, but also for their inner battle. Every follower of Christ is known not only for their inner peace with God, but also for their inner battle. These verses which we just read give words to why doing good brings with it a pull towards looking good. These verses give words to why we can be worshiping God during the singing and then have these moments of jealousy swell up within us. These verses give words to why prayer and time with our Heavenly Father is something we need to fight to fit in and not something everything else in our day revolves around. These verses give words to why part of us pulls towards trusting in our bank balance to secure our future and another part pulls us towards trusting in the promises of God to secure our future. These verses give words to why we are still drawn to lust and to jealousy and rivalries and anger. The reality, the reality that we face in these verses that we're reading this morning is that when we become followers of Christ, there is peace with God. There is an incredible peace with God. We have been declared righteous. When God looks on our lives, he sees us in Christ as Christ because the innocence of Christ was imputed, transferred to us. So we should have a deep and abiding peace. That God is with us, that God is for us, that he is committed to us, preparing eternal home for us, working all things for our good. Our peace as Christians should flow from claiming confidently all the promises of God. Some of us need to hear that this morning. No matter the chaos in your life, no matter the struggles this week, no matter the struggles next week, sink deeply into the promises of God, that God is with you, that God is in you, that he is for you, that he's committed to you, that he's preparing an eternal home for you, working all things for your good. Sink deeply into the promises of God. But the the moment we lost the fight in running away from God and we received peace with God, a new fight emerged within us. Because the minute we become Christians, something happens internally into our hearts, comes something from outside of us. Into our lives comes something from outside of us called the Holy Spirit. 
which is not a feeling and it's not a force, but it's a person, the third person of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit brings into us the principle of holiness. And the Holy Spirit brings into us a yearning for God, a love for God, a yearning for godliness. Verse 22 tells us the Holy Spirit brings into our lives seeds of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And what ends up happening within us is that now we've got two parts. There's two parts to our hearts. There's two parts to our will. There's two parts to our minds. We have the flesh and we have the Spirit of God. And where the tension comes in, as we read in verse 17, these two entities are entirely opposed to one another. They're like magnets the wrong way around. They're opposites. One side is pulling us one way, the other is pulling us another way. They are against one another. And what this means is that as followers of Christ, our present reality is torn. We've been declared sons and daughters of God. We are his in Christ, through Christ. We relationally have peace with God, but our present reality is torn. Torn between the desires of flesh on one side, torn between the desires of the spirit on the other. So every follower of Christ is known, not only for his inner peace with God, but also for his inner battle. I opened the story with uh, the British being the bad guys. So I'm going to tell another story with the British being the good guys, to even things out. And you might have seen the movie Dunkirk on this, so that if you have, this might be familiar. In 1940, the, the Second World War was starting to heat up, and the German army had just invaded Poland, and France was next. So the British army sent troops over the English Channel, which is the sea between England and France, to help defend France from the German army because the threat was beginning to um, loom large beside them. But as the British troops were sent over, they totally miscalculated their position. So when they arrived in France, the, the German army unknowingly surrounded the British troops and trapped them right on the coast. And the British became stuck on the beaches, sandwiched between German forces that were squeezing in on them from all angles. And it quickly became clear that they needed to retreat. They needed to reorganize themselves or they would easily be wiped out sitting there on the beaches. But the problem was getting them off the beaches because the water was too shallow for any of those big, large destroyer ships to come in and pick them up. Soldiers were wading out into the ocean trying to get to them, but the water was too cold and it was all too slow. So as time was running out, the gravity of the situation became clearer and clearer and more and more pressing. If the Germans closed in, they could literally crush the British army. Over a quarter of the British army was standing on those beaches. So in a final act of desperation, the British Ministry of Shipping, back in London, began making phone calls, looking to find anyone along the coast of England who had a boat looking to enlist the help of fishermen and old men and young men too young to fight, asking them, will you go? Will, will you help? Will you set sail to go get our men? And they said to the fishermen and the old men, the young men too young to fight, our ships are too big. We need smaller boats, ones that will be able to cross over and sail closer to the beaches and pick them up. Will you go? And over the next week, 850 little boats 
sailed back and forth between England and France, rescuing 340,000 soldiers from the beaches of France. Why did the fishermen and the old men and the young men too young to fight get in their little boats and go? Why step into the battle? Why not stay home? Surely there was something else they could be doing that week. Surely something else had got them out of bed the morning that they got that phone call. Surely there was other issues to solve, other fights to fight. No! They're silly. That's a silly thought. They're silly questions. Because the country was at stake. The future was at stake. Their friends and nephews and cousins and children were on those beaches. That week there wasn't any other issue. That week there was no other fights. There was just one, one battle that rose above everything else. And it would be foolish. It would be, a, it would be to have a skewed view of reality to think that there was a more important battle. You see, every follower of Christ is known not only for his inner peace with God, but for also for his inner battle. But the question is, which battle is most important to us? We wake up every day with enough energy, even if just a little, to fight for something. But the question is, is the fight to conquer our sin rising above all other fights? We stretch ourselves to get into good schools. We stress and we strain to get our kids into good schools. We fight for new circumstances, better circumstances, nicer apartments, nicer neighborhoods, better jobs, more prestigious jobs. We push ourselves to be accepted and affirmed. We fight to look good. We swing that leg out of bed in the morning to fight for something, and we take intentional steps to get where we want to go. The question is, why doesn't the fight to conquer our sin rise above all other fights? Why aren't we more intentional? Why isn't that battle on our minds more? I think a pretty good answer is that sin has warped our understanding of what it means to flourish. We wake up and get up every morning seeking to flourish in life. But sin has warped what that means. So we don't know where to put our energy. We don't know how to pick our battles, so we just follow what everyone else is striving for. One of the most crucial roles of the church, one of the most crucial roles the church has is preaching and teaching and telling one another what it means to flourish as a human being. And we have got to critique our culture because we are being told by them what we need to be. We are being told what it means to be a successful, flourishing human. We're being told where to put our energy and how to pick our battles. And it's distracting us from the life Christ has freed us and empowered us to pursue. Can you imagine a family broken by the war and a teenage boy is left behind while all of his brothers are deployed on the beaches of France? And he's not there because he was too young to enlist. He's had to stay home. He's had to stay behind. And now his brothers are stuck over on the beaches of France. He's keeping busy. 
Maybe he's tending to the family farm. Maybe he's working in a local grocery store. But then he gets a phone call from the British Ministry of Shipping. Son, can you sail? We've got a boat to get you there. And you have our permission to go. You're free to sail, son. Can you go bring our man home? Yes. I can sail. Yes, I'll go. It's my country. It's my fight. The boy was called up. The fight was clear. His purpose was clear. It's not that he had to set seal. It's not that he was forced to seal, but he knew what was good for him. He knew what was good for his family and his future. He knew what it meant in that moment to have a passport that said British. He knew to walk away from the farm, walk out of the grocery store. He knew where to put his energy. He knew which fight mattered. Based on his identity, he knew what his purpose was. He knew who the enemy was. And then with a phone call, he had the freedom to set sail. Rogers Park, look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. If you're a child of God, that is your enemy. If you are a child of God, that list is your enemy. The enemy in our lives, the enemy wreaking havoc in our homes and in our marriages, in our church, in our relationship is sin. It's our flesh. Our culture will tell us that our enemy is our circumstances, which we need to constantly fight to improve. And yet God tells us the enemy, the hindrance in our lives, in our homes, is our sin. Our enemy is not our small apartments, so getting a bigger place isn't our most important battle. Our enemy is not Chicago public schools, so saving for private school isn't our most important battle. Our enemy is not our job, so getting a new job is not your most important battle. Your enemy is not your singleness, so getting married isn't your most important battle. Fathers, our families need us to battle sin in our lives. That's what our wives need. That's what our children need. Rogers Park. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23. That list, that list is what it means to flourish. And it doesn't matter what our culture says. It matters what God says because he made us and he knows our purpose. He knows what we're made for. That list is what it means to flourish. That is what God intended human flourishing to look like in the first century, and it's what he intended it to look like now in the 21st century. There is nothing mentioned in that list about your giftings. There's nothing mentioned about your salary. There's nothing mentioned about the size of your apartment. There's nothing mentioned about your marital status. If you want to know the best thing for our families, if we want to know the best thing for our families and our futures, look at those lists and fight for the second one and crush the first one. It's powerful. Wow. Crush it. I can work with that. <laughs> 
Maybe not. Nice, Andy. Look at those lists. <laughs> Fight for the second one. Crush the first one. Gorgeous Park, you'll hear us preach every week about the sins in our lives. And it's intentional because the greatest hindrance to seeing the wonder of Jesus is to begin thinking that we don't need him. So we preach our sins every week. So that we don't preach morality and hide our sin. We come together with our sin every week knowing that we're sinners and remind each other of God's grace and kindness in Jesus Christ. And from now on until Christ's return and the restoration of all things, we are going to be battling sin in our lives. And the more mature you get in your faith, the more you're going to see your sin. Generally, others are going to see your growth in Christ-likeness and you're going to see more sin. But we would be doing you a disservice if we weren't clear that being in Christ means that you are in a position where you can crush sin. With the power of the Spirit, we can crush the flesh. And hear me, I'm not saying that there isn't going to be sins that we will struggle with for the rest of our lives. But we have got to be a people that believe in and pursue the removal of and the deliverance from sin. Some of us here this morning are followers of Christ and we're in bondage to sin and it's crippling us. And I have to preach the word of God, which means that by the power of the Spirit, you can be delivered. I believe in resurrection. I believe in the miraculous. I believe that the deepest parts of our being, there can be transformation. That's what the gospel is. That's what it means. So how can this happen? In our passage this morning in Galatians, there are different ways that we interact with the Holy Spirit within us. And the Holy Spirit is the key. The first way that we interact with the Holy Spirit is in verse 16. Where it says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And what that's saying with the phrase, walk by the Spirit, it brings up this idea of act, active, intentional pursuit of God. Active, intentional, on our part, pursuit of God. Then in verse 18, we read that we are actually led by the Spirit. Which brings up how the Spirit acts on us first. And he's the one leading us. Then we get to verse 25 and we read that we should keep in step with the Spirit, which has, has the connotations of both, of being active and passive, that the Holy Spirit is actively going before us, actively leading us, and we are also to be actively following along. And what's hard to distinguish is where our efforts begin and work of the Holy Spirit ends where our efforts begin and where the Holy Spirit ends. And I think that's what makes our walk with God so beautiful. It's hard to distinguish where our efforts begin and the work of the Holy Spirit ends because that's what it means to live in step with the Spirit. You're literally in step, like a shadow. It means to move where the Spirit moves. 
It means to follow the Spirit like a shadow. And I know that is difficult to visualize and to get our heads around, but to walk with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit in our fight with the flesh means first we need to sit and listen and hear where He's leading us. Sometimes I think we keep this Holy Spirit so vague we just don't give Him a chance to speak. We need to listen for the clarity of what the Holy Spirit is calling out in our lives. What's he saying? What's he pointing at in our lives? And then we have a decision to make. Whether we're going to actively follow or not. As children of God, the Spirit of God is working in our lives. He's leading us in our battle with sin. So we need to ask ourselves, where is he leading us? What is the Holy Spirit calling out in our lives? What's he pointing at in your life? Sin goes deep. There's a lot that the Holy Spirit can point at. But what's he pointing at? If we sit and we listen and we hear what the Holy Spirit is convicting us about, we know where he's leading us to. What sin does he want us to tackle today? That's a good place to start. Yeah, we need to recruit other followers of Christ into the battle with us. Ephesians 5 verse 9 says, At one time you were in darkness, but now you're the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We need followers of Christ around us who see us in the light, who will encourage us and challenge us and pray for us and rejoice with us and pray with us and to be hopeful with us. Not everybody, but some people in your life that you can trust, that you can get with and pray together and talk together and help one another. Back when the British... We're the bad guys again, ruling over Ireland. And when the Irish were tired of fighting and close to giving up, the poets and the storytellers and songwriters would travel around the country and read their poems and tell their stories and they'd sing their songs with the most profound and simple purpose, to remind the people who they already were to remind the people who they already were. There was a fire in people's hearts, and it just needed kindled. Michael Horton, a theologian, writes, Most people think the goal of religion is to get people to become something that they are not, while the gospel calls believers to become more and more what they already are in Christ. In Christ, we are the sons and daughters of God, and when we have tasted the goodness of God... It's not that we're forced to fight sin. We just know what's good for us. We know what's best for us. We know which battle matters. God, we just thank you for your word today. God, I pray, God, that you will do a work in our hearts. God, may we be known for our Christ-likeness. May we be known for our holiness. May we be known as a people here in Rogers Park who are in step with the Spirit. God, who know, God, what's best for our children and our wives and our families, God, is to be holy, to be Christ-like. Not to get bigger homes and better jobs, God. 
May we pick the fight, God, to be a people that look like you and act like you. And God, through our actions and through our lives, God, may people see our good works and may they glorify you. In Jesus' name.